welcome to The Green Urbanist, a podcast for urbanists fighting climate change. I'm Ross. Hello, everyone. Today's episode is a fascinating conversation with Jeff Risman. My name is Jeff Risman, and I'm the senior director of the industry program at Energy Innovation, which is a nonpartisan energy policy and, and climate think tank based out of California. Jeff joined me to talk about his new book, which is called Zero Carbon Industry. And in particular, I want to talk to him about decarbonizing the industrial sector as it relates to um, buildings and infrastructure and urbanization in general. So we really focused on talking about concrete and steel as two you know, huge contributors to industrial emissions and global emissions and being those being core elements of how we are creating cities, you know, constructing buildings and infrastructure, etc. And so we have this, you know, quite wide-ranging conversation of, you know, what are the likely pathways of decarbonizing these two, you know, really intensive materials? What role does policy have to play? turns out that Jeff, he told me just before we started talking that he also has a master's degree in city and regional planning. So he was totally tuned in to all things like circular economy and um, adaptive reuse of buildings and efficient use of uh, materials in architecture. So yeah, we had a really interesting conversation. Uh, but on top of that, he's also just just incredibly knowledgeable about how all these materials are made, how all the industrial processes work all the new and upcoming technologies for decarbonizing them and electrifying them, etc. So yeah, it's a really, really interesting conversation. I learned a lot. It was very eye-opening for me and I think it should be interesting for you as well. Just before we jump into the conversation, just to let you know that his book, Zero Carbon Industry, is out on the 27th of February, 2024, and it's available for pre-order now. The link to uh, have a look at that is in the episode description so do check that out once you've uh, listened to the conversation if you are enjoying uh, the green urbanist and if you enjoy this podcast episode uh, please do share it uh, on social media or with a friend or a colleague that really helps the ch- the prog- uh, the podcast grow uh, another thing you can do if you're listening on spotify or apple podcasts is to rate and leave a review for the podcast so that actually really helps um, for more people to see it, for it to you know climb in the rankings and get recommended to more people on those platforms, um, so that really does help. Okay, uh, enough of me yammering on here. Uh, enjoy the conversation with Jeff. The reason I wanted to have you on was uh, you have a new book coming out. Can you tell us uh, what what is that book about and what's the what's the thesis of it? Absolutely, the book is Zero Carbon Industry: Transformative Technologies and Policies to Achieve Sustainable Prosperity. Um, and yeah, it's being published by Columbia University Press on February 27th. And um, the book um, is trying to fill um, a gap in awareness. So there's a lot of attention is paid to how to clean up um, electricity generation through solar and wind, for example, or vehicles through electric vehicles. But people don't pay as much attention to how to decarbonize manufacturing in the industrial processes that produce cement and concrete and steel and plastics and all the materials and products that we rely on every day. 
Uh, but globally, those processes are responsible for a third of human-caused emissions, um, including the electricity they purchase. It's about a quarter of human-caused emissions, uh, excluding the purchased electricity. Either way, it's a huge share of our global emissions footprint, and we can't solve climate change without a, a, without a shift to clean industry. Uh, this book aims to provide um, a comprehensive guide to the what are these industries and how are they producing their emissions? What are the exciting technologies that are enabling a transition to clean industry? And finally, what are the policies that policymakers can enact to help ensure that these technologies are commercialized and scaled up? Excellent, excellent. So, okay, sounds, I mean, sounds really fascinating and sounds absolutely <laughs> super important. And we'll get into more of the city scale stuff um, in a moment, but I'd be interested to know what are the sort of main, um, I suppose, industrial processes or materials that you cover in the book that are sort of the big, the big hitters? Sure. So while the book covers the entirety of industry and manufacturing, there are some specific materials that stand out. Um, the three biggest emitting, highest emitting industries are the iron and steel industry, the um, chemicals industry, which produces plastics, which are used in, in building quite a lot, and um, the uh, cement industry, where cement is the binder in concrete. So it's um, the building sector is, is the overwhelming consumer of that. Yeah. So there's tight linkages between um, industry and industrial emissions processes and the choices we make for how we build our cities and infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose, well, maybe let's let's get started into the this question of concrete and steel, because I think just, I suppose, probably listeners of this podcast will know, but just to set the scene a bit about the fact that, you know, the, the, we're, society is rapidly urbanizing ar around the world and we're, we're moving quickly from 50% of the population being urban at the moment to probably 70% or above by 2050. Um, and so, you know, in that couple of decades time, we're seeing really no, whole new cities, you know, whole infra infrastructure networks being built. And a lot of that will be built with concrete and steel as the main components. So to me, that feels like a good place to start um, in terms of, you know, what, what is a likely decarbonization pathway for these materials if, if, if there is one? It's a great uh, question, and you're right that this is um, this question is growing in importance as um, as uh, urbanization continues around the world and in lower and middle income countries, um, particularly. There are good decarbonization pathways for steel and for concrete and cement. Um, one option for steel um, is to increase steel recycling where you take steel from demolished buildings and scrapped vehicles and um, put it into an electric arc furnace and produce new steel with it, which is a fairly low carbon process if, if fed by renewable electricity. Um, not completely carbon free, but far, far, far less, about 7% as much as um, making primary steel, non-recycled steel. The problem is that we don't generate enough scrap every year to meet our full steel demand. So there isn't enough scrap to recycle. Uh, so we need a way to decarbonize primary steel making as well. Um, and the 
leading technological contender there is a process um, that uses hydrogen uh, called hydrogen direct reduced iron. So um, you create hydrogen uh, gas um, by using uh, renewable electricity to split water um, into hydrogen and oxygen. And then you can use the hydrogen to convert um, iron ore, which is what you dig up out of the ground, um, to metallic iron, which is the main component of steel. Um, that's, uh, there's already, that's already been demonstrated. There's um, a uh, consortium of companies called Hybrid in Sweden that have produced um, uh, zero carbon primary steel this way. And um, projects are underway to build more of these uh, um, types of plants um, around the world, particularly in Europe. Um, there are other steel routes uh, based on direct electrolysis, where you use electricity to convert iron ore to metallic iron rather than hydrogen or fossil fuels. Um, that, and um, there are some startups working on approaches there. Um, either at high temperatures, uh, which is called molten oxide electrolysis, or with the iron ore ground up in a solution, aqueous electrolysis. Um, not to get too technical, but those are um, a little less uh, technologically mature than the hydrogen mm -hmm. route, uh, but also are possible options. Um, on cement, and so... Uh, your listeners might be aware that, that concrete is this composite material where you have cement, which is a binder like a glue that holds together um, tiny bits of rock and sand, which are called the aggregate. So concrete is this mixture of cement and aggregate, and you can pour it into any shape to form buildings and bridges and, and things. Um, the aggregate is not uh, where the emissions are. It doesn't take uh, much energy to crush up rock or gather sand, and you can do it with electricity. So the emissions are really come from the production of the cement component to concrete. And there, um, there uh, the way that's made today is that people put um, limestone into a large um, cement kiln, which heats it very hot, usually by burning coal, and decomposes the limestone to make a uh, clinker, the main component of cement. Um, and that produces a lot of carbon dioxide, some from burning the fossil fuels and some from decomposing the, the limestone, which is calcium carbonate. There's carbon in there that comes out. Um, so cement needs a, at least a two-pronged approach. Uh, one, to decarbonize the heat, you can heat the cement kiln and the precalciner electrically. And another approach to address the, um, the emissions from breaking down the calcium carbonate rock, uh, which you can either capture using carbon capture. That becomes a lot easier if you've already de-electrified the heat because then you're not mixing it with all the exhaust gas from burning the stuff. Um, or you, uh, there are alternate chemistry cements that have lower um, or even potentially zero uh, carbon emissions from their materials. Um, so that's a, a quick overview of, mm. of ways to decarbonize those two important building materials. That, that's really fascinating. I mean, I think it, it strikes me that it sounds like a lot of the technologies we might need are already in existence or at least 
at least in a small form and and ready to be scaled yeah i think that um we we've there are many exciting technologies that um can and and are in the process of decarbonizing industrial production um for instance there are a, a huge range of technologies to produce heat from electricity um, which can be uh, deliver heat more efficiently than burning fuels for heat and um, then is easier to decarbonize because then you can supply the electricity with from wind solar uh, or other mm. or other zero emission sources so um, and in many cases all that's needed is to adapt a technology used in one area to a new area for instance um, we're talking about cement where um, today the cement kilns are heated by burning coal. But there's a company, Cementa, that demonstrated that you can heat them using an electrical uh, plasma torch. Uh, It's the same technology that's used in a plasma cutter, which cuts sheet metal. Um, So um, in in that case, you don't have to reinvent a plasma torch. It already exists. It's used industrially for cutting metal. All you need to do is adapt this technology to heating uh, cement kilns. Um, or, and there are other technologies that could perform this role and so on. But it's, it's an example of how a lot of the work that needs to be done now isn't at the fundamental research stage. It's just at the stage of engineering development or commercializing new products like, a, like an electrical heating system for a, new in, for a different industry. That's interesting. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, it... It strikes me that I think you know fossil fuels are, <clears throat> of course, the, the the villain of the climate change story. But I think we need to acknowledge that they, I mean, we really have built our whole society around what they can do for us and and the incredible, um, you know, the incredible range of of materials and processes that they they allow through that you know incredible energy density. Um, do you think that, you know, what's the role for? It sounds like some things can be replaced with, we'll say, zero emission or lower emission technology. But considering the speed at which we need to decarbonize, you know, what's the role of simply doing less, using less steel, using less concrete, etc.? Yes, I'm glad you've uh, you've touched on this because um, material efficiency and circular economy approaches are so important. So the technologies I've mentioned can produce these materials cleanly, but um, even more cost-effective than that could be to design a building or a product to be just as functional, just as useful, but use less material. Um, and that's absolutely possible you, with, um, with smart designs that uh, optimize material use and material placement. Um, just to give two, so the buildings, buildings and urban uh, landscape are a good example of this. For instance, um, today um, buildings are often built uh, using um, some buildings with metal frames use metal beams, um, and they have a limited number of metal beam sizes and thicknesses that they'll use on a construction site. And they, that's to keep things simple, right? If you have a smaller number of different uh, sizes or thicknesses of beams, um, there's less complexity there. But it also means that you're going to round up. You're going to use the next heaviest, strongest beam, which may have more material than you need to, to provide the structural support you need in a given spot. 
So if you use, um, if you have a design that places that uses the material where you need it for support and doesn't place excess material, um, you can uh, reduce the amount of steel needed in that building without affecting um, its uh, ability to withstand load and and earthquakes and so on. Uh, A similar example comes from pouring concrete where typically it's poured into these um, molds and shapes that they, they put on site. They may block it off with wood boards, but you can pour it, you can create curved fabric molds that will place the concrete into shapes that um, place it where strength is needed. Um, mm. Or you can even, you can even create voids within the concrete using, uh, in, and this is again for spots where you don't need that strength. Um, uh, using, um, you know, an inflatable thing that blocks the concrete from entering that spot. And then, so you can, um, use less concrete if you're willing to, uh, do a few more steps, uh, that are not energy intensive, uh, in the, in the construction phase. Um, so the key there is to try to keep it simple and fast since, uh, people want to be able to build buildings, um, quickly, uh, mm. Time can be money uh, for these, you know, investments, um, and uh, and that's absolutely possible um, with the with um, as these uh, techniques become more uh, common. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, within the the sustainable architecture space, you know, one, one of uh, something that's commonly said is the most sustainable building is the one you don't build, um, and it's this real thing of checking, you know do we really need this? Um, you know, and, and I think the economy hasn't caught up with that because of course, building things is, is, is good for GDP is good for economic activity, but they're not, you know, in terms of the carbon emissions and the, the environmental impact, it, it's not always worth it in terms of what society gets for that, um, that construction. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, in the vein of not building, uh, buildings when you don't need to, um, there's adaptive reuse, So, of course, you could take a structure that already exists and maybe it's not a perfect fit for its location now because, uh, you know, the neighborhood changed or the needs are different and but potentially it can be adapted, you know, changing offices to housing or changing a railway station to a hotel. And aside from being environmentally friendly and material efficient, that also can preserve historical character and make for some aesthetically beautiful structures. And then the other way to uh, the other piece of build of not building buildings when you don't need to is building them for longevity and quality. So this is particularly an issue in some places like China, where the average lifespan of a building is two to three decades, and then they will tear it down and replace it. And given that China has a vast amount of urban infrastructure, if they're replacing all of that every 30 years or or so, that's an enormous amount of concrete and steel that has to be produced unnecessarily. So if buildings are built with sufficient quality, which relates to strong building codes and uh, material quality um, and are maintained properly, then they can buildings can last far longer than 30 years they can last 100 years or more and that and um and that is the, the less you have to replace a building the fewer buildings you need to build simply as replacements so 
adaptive reuse, longevity, and quality are all parts of the puzzle as well. You, you touched on there about regulation and policy. What's the role of that in, in this decarbonization? Policy is very important. Um, the um, There are all of these um, wonderful technologies that are able to decarbonize industry, um, but um, the playing field is not entirely fair today. Fossil fuels don't have to pay for the full harms they do, either the damages they cause to the climate, nor to the public health harms, including the thousands of deaths that they cause in the United States alone uh, from their um, conventional emissions, such as particulates, uh, conventional versus climate or greenhouse gas. They emit both. Um, and so they have this unfair advantage where they're causing all these harms and it's not priced into their costs. And so, um, and so policy can help to provide a more fair and level playing field. Um, there are a, a variety of ways, there are a variety of good policies that can uh, achieve this. Um, my book, uh, Zero Carbon Industry, goes through a lot of them. Uh, one that I'll highlight here uh, would be uh, green public procurement. So governments, uh, public agencies are very major buyers of um, building materials like uh, steel and concrete, because not just for public buildings, which range from government offices to schools and, and so on, but also for infrastructure, uh, all the roads and highways and, and bridges. So um, and government can generally choose what it wants to buy with, with its own money. So one, one policy that some governments use is to set aside a certain share of their purchases and say that they have to meet certain uh, standards. So uh, the government could say at least 5% of the steel in projects we fund has to be made through zero carbon primary steel processes. Mm. And that can help those processes, the hydrogen-based steelmaking I mentioned earlier, scale up because they now have a the guaranteed buyer and and the steel company will be more willing to invest in a hydrogen-based steelmaking furnace when they know they'll be able to sell that output product to help build our, our roads and public infrastructure. Yeah. Um, and then as that technology matures and as the mar it, it, it gains scale, the costs come down. And then it can uh, enter additional markets as costs come down. Uh, government can increase the share of its of, of steel. You know, it starts at 5%, maybe it goes to 10, 20, et cetera. Um, and eventually then, you know, you can transition to other policies like standards, which start to require uh, lower carbon materials. Um, building codes are a particularly important uh, policy in, in that regard, because so building codes today mostly look at the properties of the building that they're making, you know, the building's square footage and its environmental performance and such. Um, they, they seldom look at the emissions that went into making the building's materials. Uh, those are called embodied uh, carbon emissions. Um, but there's been some innovation in that regard. Um, just this past August, uh, the California Building Standards Commission uh, established limits on emissions from manufacturing the materials used in large commercial and school buildings. 
I believe California is the first state uh, in the nation to factor these embodied emissions into its building codes. Um, so that's uh, a technique that um, that the officials that set building codes, the commissions and such can use to help um, ensure that buildings are built with cleaner materials. And then the codes can be tightened over time as, as the materials, uh, uh, commercial availability of low carbon materials grows. Mm. Yeah, it, 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 it's, California always seems to be decades ahead of, <laughs> of the rest of us in many ways. <laughs> well, um, California doesn't have a monopoly on good policy design. And um, <laughs> I, would, I would urge uh, policymakers uh, anywhere to consider these, these measures because it's, it's really a, um, it helps uh, companies also get ahead, get, get ahead of the learning curve and maintain technological leadership. Um, and, um, and it's going to be necessary, uh, not just in California, but uh, across the country and across the world to meet our, our climate goals. Yeah, it's, it's interesting in different jurisdictions. I mean, I think in one of the frustrations with planning in England, from, from my experience, I'm based in London, is that really central government holds all of the cards and it, it, it doesn't really give much power to regions or cities to sort of set higher ambitions. Uh, and the exception there would probably be London, which has has a mayor, has the, the Greater London Authority, and it has been um, very good at setting much higher standards. And for instance, for, for major developments in London, there's a requirement that they're net zero carbon um, you know, you know, in policy. So do you do you think that cities have can have a sort of outsized role in driving forward these policies in in really making a difference locally? Oh, absolutely. Um, cities are so important in helping to establish the policy environment that will uh, enable the clean industrial transformation. Um, in many places, um, building codes are done at the at the city or local level. Um, uh, although as you point out, in some cases, it may be reserved for a higher level of government, uh, but that can have advantages too, since you have the advantage of scale. If the, if the higher level of government does enact a good, a good policy, it will affect more localities. Mm. Um, so, um, cities, uh, but aside from the building codes, which can reflect the embodied emissions in the building products alongside, of course, the building's performance, environmental performance during the building's lifetime. Um, they also um, uh, can, can do uh, set urban form. They can use green public procurement. There are financing mechanisms that, that apply at the, at the at, uh, subnational and, and, and local and regional levels. Um, it's it's uh, fairly common for city governments in some places uh, including the United States, to offer tax incentives or other subsidies to companies that uh, achieve certain public policy goals. Like if you locate here in our city, we'll give you a tax break as long as you create a certain number of jobs. Well, there's no reason that they can't attach environmental goals uh, to, to those types of incentives. They can also say, well, this tax break is if you locate here and produce uh, materials in a low carbon way, or, or this mm-hmm. is a, this is a program that offers incentives to clean industry to locate here in our city. 
um, and then it creates high quality jobs for for the the, uh, the residents of the area, and it avoids introducing the pollution that might come with an incentive that did did not have those environmental requirements. So it protects your people the, the health of the the residents of the city. So it's a really good fit for for cities in that way. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, my my image of the sort of um, supply chain for these industrial products is that it's very globalized, and that we might be we might be buying steel and and other inputs from you know from around the world. Do you think that sort of relocalization of this industry is is part of the solution, or do you think we'll still you know keep with the sort of largely globalized system, or or have I just got that wrong? <laughs> Um, good question. Um, so, well, I don't have a crystal ball, but I do think that, um, you're right that these commodities are traded internationally, uh, steel, even cement to a degree, although, uh, more of the cement and concrete industry, more of that is done locally just because the materials are bulky and heavy and the precursor materials are widely available in most geographies, so there's a little less of a reason to 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 trade that um, in, in many regions. But um, so uh, just about every every almost every country has an industrial base. There, it's it varies in size and composition, but uh, there's an industry sector in almost every uh, economy. Um, so there's something that almost every policymaker can do to help clean up their their local industry. Um, I don't think that international supply chains are going away. I think there still will be international trade of materials, but these policies can apply to internationally traded materials as well, um, and that can help uh, domestic producers sometimes. Um, and there's, uh, I mean, a major uh, policy example of this is the European Union's uh, carbon border adjustment mechanism, where there's a there's a price on carbon emissions in Europe, and um, and this mechanism means if products are being imported into Europe, whether it's steel or cement or other things, it looks at the embodied emissions, the emissions that went into making them, and if they don't meet these standards. There's a fee um, which uh, helps level the playing field for the producers inside Europe who have to pay the who have to cut emissions or pay the carbon pricing, um, and it create and it it basically extends this incentive to other jurisdictions, ones that may not even have their own uh, climate policies, and it gives the, a reason for a steelmaker in some other country to clean up its operations. Um, so policymakers in particular areas can, can do a surprising amount to, uh, decarbonize, uh, even given, uh, global supply chains. Um, so, um, and, and, and yes, it could drive some relocalization of production, particularly if there are incentives for that, like the ones I mentioned earlier, you know, some type of financial incentive for an industry to locate locally if under under conditions like it provides certain number of jobs and it produce and it's using clean processes so um all of this is possible through smart policy yeah interesting interesting um can we talk a little bit about plastic um you mentioned earlier that 
plastic is widely used in in the building industry as well. Um, what's the problem with plastic at the moment? And then what's your sort of thoughts on decarbonization? Sure. Um, so plastic is another important building material, um, maybe not as much as concrete and steel, but a lot of pipes and things are made of plastic and um, and other plastic polymers and, and adhesives and whatnot. Um, today, uh, plastic is, is made from petrochemicals. So um, the, they take, um, the, the chemicals industry takes fossil fuels, um, fossil fuels that are not burned for energy, but, are, but go into other products are called feedstocks, feedstock fossil fuels. And they will convert the fossil fuels, um, petroleum products, natural gas, um, in some cases, coal, China, for example, produces a lot of uh, these feedstocks from coal. Um, and, and then makes them into the petrochemicals, which are things like methanol and olefins and BTX aromatics. And from there, they get converted into the more familiar products that we're, um, aware of, like the different plastic resins that are used in plastic bottles and, and then the pipe, uh, PVC pipes and buildings and, um, and adhesives and, and, and so on coatings, paints. So, um, the, uh, there are several mechanisms by which they emit, th- this process emits greenhouse gases. So there's s- these, these chemical transformations to make the petrochemicals and then make the products often involve input energy, heat, which can be supplied by burning fossil fuels, often natural gas or coal in China. So that's one source, the industrial heating. Also, the feedstocks themselves contain more carbon atoms than uh, are in the output products. So the plastic has some carbon in it, but the feedstock fossil fuels had more. So the difference there is emitted as carbon dioxide uh, process emissions during some of the processing steps. Um, And then there are upstream emissions from producing the fossil fuels at the oil wells, which can include leakage of methane, a potent greenhouse gas, And then there's end-of-life emissions. So today, about a quarter of all plastics that that reach end-of-life are burned, incinerated, Mm. which releases the carbon in them as carbon dioxide immediately. Um, And that share is projected to increase to about 50% by 2050. Um, And then uh, plastics released into the environment, of course, have other problems with microplastics and health impacts, and, and, um, and they too may ultimately decay. Um, there's a study that shows that microbes are evolving pathways to break down plastics, which wow. in one sense is good because it could remove, reduce the amount of plastic in the environment. But if it converts it to CO2, uh, that's not a good mm. side effect. So uh, this is to say there are, this is, uh, there are a number of reasons why we would care to decarbonize plastics as a, as a building material and as a material for other purposes. Um, so how do we do that? Um, there are one, one option is to substitute other materials. Um, in some cases, you can use, um, uh, for instance, you can use paper bags instead of plastic bags in some cases. And as long as those are responsibly recycled or composted at the end of life, the, uh, they're better for the environment. Um, 
than uh, whereas they shouldn't go into landfill where they could turn into methane. Um, uh, there are also uh, plant-based plastic alternatives, bioplastics. Uh, you've probably seen those with cutlery and things. Um, and uh, material efficiency, and uh, which we talked about earlier, applies just as much to plastic as it does to steel and concrete. Um, and then there are ways to, to decarbonize the production of the petrochemicals themselves, mostly involving clean hydrogen. So if you start with hydrogen made from clean electricity, splitting water, you can use that instead of fossil feedstocks to make your petrochemicals. And then when you turn them into plastics, you can use the same, it's the same methanol or same BTX aromatics. So downstream of there, it's the same processes, but the carbon in them are, uh, you know, had to come from captured carbon that you combined with the hydrogen. And so it's, it's carbon neutral if you use that production route. Yeah, I guess, I guess, you know, the building industry urbanization isn't the main driver of plastic use, is it? It it feels like consumer, I suppose consumer products are probably driving more of that. Um, the built, so the, the built, the built environment, um, is a significant share of plastic, but it's not the largest share. Mm. Um, I think I, uh, I may in my book, zero carbon industry, I may have the breakdown, but I don't have it in front of me. Sure. Um, the, uh, but there's also packaging, um, which applies to the building industry as well. Um, where a lot of these products are going to come in plastic packaging, Mm. um, for building materials as well as for consumer products. Um, so I think it's a it's a part of the mix, but um, uh, and, and and it's important even even whether or not it's the largest consumer of plastics, mm. it's still a large consumer. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I guess for for me, it seems like if we're hopefully moving away from fossil fuels as our energy source, moving more towards renewables, and 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 we'll say uh, harvesting less oil um over the coming decades that also means inevitably we'll we'll have just less feedstock to create plastics so we'll be needing to find alternatives won't we or or just using less um yes i mean oil is an important feedstock for these plastic materials um i um and and i certainly uh expect that we would be producing less oil. We need to produce less in order to meet our climate goals. Um, I tend to think of it as more of a demand-driven thing. So we we displace the uses of oil first, and therefore less oil is drill, dr- is extracted. Mm. Um, so the the by sub by using all of these techniques such as clean hydrogen and material efficiency and whatnot, we reduce our demand for oil. And then um, when there's less demand for it, less is produced. Um, I think it's the other route, like less is produced, so there's a scarcity, I think is is less likely to play out that way. Um, so for policymakers, I guess I would emphasize finding policies to clean up materials, clean up the urban environment, and then the resulting impact on fossil fuel production will naturally follow what's the um what's what's the role of economics here in the sense that 
it's obviously incredibly profitable to <laughs> be producing fossil fuels and to be producing you know the sort of d- dirty industrial products how do you displace that sort of profit motive behind that um well we'll still be selling uh, the, the goods and services that people need. Sure. We'll still be selling buildings and vehicles and all of that. Um, and um, there's no reason that uh, someone would pay less for a well-designed uh, vehicle or building that uses less unnecessary material. Um, because just as you can pay for, excess concrete that was placed somewhere, you can also pay for architectural and engineering design services that improve the quality of the building and allow less material to be used. So it doesn't necessarily uh, like uh, reduce jobs. Uh, it can create jobs in ter- both through the investment in the clean processes and also in the design services and other areas that enable these products to, and buildings to be made in this more environmentally friendly way. Um, so in terms of economics, uh, which was your question, um, this can be uh, an important driver of economic growth where you want companies to invest money in new technologies, clean, new, modern technologies, and in their people, whether that's the workers who are creating these materials, whether it's the architects and engineers who are designing uh, more efficient buildings. Um, these, these investments um, create jobs both directly and then throughout the economy through the respending of money when these, these people and, and companies, when you're buying materials, use that money to purchase other things. Um, and a lot of times it creates more jobs than the traditional way. Like fossil fuel industries are um, have a low labor intensity, meaning for every dollar you invest in them, uh, a fair amount of it is going into capital as opposed to paying for workers. And also a, a fair amount of it is going abroad. Uh, mm. So because um, there's still a lot of imports of, of fossil fuels. So they don't create as many jobs in the in the uh, jurisdiction that the that policymakers in the UK and Europe and, and even the US are, are, and other places, Japan, etc., are, are responsible for. So um, this shift to cleaner industrial processes and materials can help to create jobs through through smart investment and uh, and shifting these the dollars from industries where they're not creating a lot of jobs locally to industries that do create a lot of jobs locally. That that's a really interesting element of this. I think. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you for outlining that. Um, I wanted to shift a little bit because we've been talking about decarbonization so far, which is obviously hugely important. But I'm also interested, what are your thoughts on the way that these industries uh, have pollution impacts, but also biodiversity impacts and and, and just environmental impacts beyond the the carbon emissions? Do you see that uh, improving with these cleaner technologies? And as we decarbonize, do they they work hand in hand? Oh, absolutely. So... um... When in industries that are burning fossil fuels today to produce their heat, uh, uh, primarily, um, and these fossil fuels don't just emit carbon dioxide, they also emit uh, a range of pollutants, um, 
partic- fine particulate matter or particulates are the most damaging type uh, for human health and the health of any other animals or creatures that breathe them in. Um, but there's also sulfur oxides and uh, nitrogen oxides um, that can uh, that create that uh, create ha- harmful health and environmental impacts. Um, the um, uh, acidification of, uh, of of water bodies is an example from uh, not from particulates but from sulfur and such. So. Um, when you shift to a clean process, you, let's say you electrify that heat. You're using um, you're using an electric resistance heater or an industrial heat pump or um, some technology like that. There's no combustion process at the industrial plant to generate the heat, so there are no particulate emissions, no sulfur oxides, no nitrogen oxides, and all of those environmental impacts go away. If the electricity is produced in a dirty way, there might be some of those types of emissions near the power plant, but we're already on a a course to decarbonize the power sector through um, deployment of zero carbon electricity technologies. And in many ways, the electricity sector is ahead of the industry sector in driving towards zero pollution um, solutions. there are already uh, detailed studies and, and mod- uh, computer modeling and such that show how you can get to a decarbonized electricity grid in various geographies, including the U.S. and Europe uh, and elsewhere. Um, so for industry, electrification is a good solution because, um, because of the fact that the electricity grid can be decarbonized. And then uh, and and then that helps across the whole spectrum of of these uh, harmful impacts that the indus- that are caused by the industrial pollutant emissions. Um, I, w- I wanted to give you before we sort of move on to the final points. I want to just give you a chance um, if you, if there's think there's anything we've missed or any other like messages you wanted to give to the audience. Um, I don't think I've mentioned where uh, about the book uh, beyond the intro. So the book Zero Carbon Industry um, aims to be the definitive guide to all these things we're talking about. How to what are the emission emitting processes and how to decarbonize them? What technologies are there and what policies can can policymakers put into place? And um, and for that matter, um, if you're a citizen, what policies should you be supporting or asking mm. your elected representatives to support? It's it's really essential reading for anyone who cares about how to solve the climate crisis, and in particular, this huge piece of it. You can find out more at zerocarbonindustry.com. That's the book's website where there's uh, materials from in the book, um, and there's a, a 20% off discount code there. Um, at zerocarbonindustry.com. Excellent. Okay, really helpful. And hopefully I'll include links to to that uh, in the episode description so people can just um, get there quite easily. Um, just before we leave, I'd, I'd, you know, I think over the course of this conversation, we've sort of painted a picture of a future where we probably have... Um, you know, still living in a, in a sort of industrial society where we can meet our needs, but maybe using materials more wisely, you know, maybe not overusing materials, being more efficient, and also, you know, reducing the impact on the environment of of producing 
you know, those materials and those industrial processes. Are you uh, optimistic that we can get there? And, and, and do you have a time scale in mind of how long this sort of this huge challenge could take? Absolutely. I am optimistic that we can get there. I, I know we have the technologies that can decarbonize industrial production. And it's largely a matter of getting the right policies into place that help level the playing field, as I mentioned earlier, against the, the fossil fuel, the dirty technologies, and um, which, gives, which gives the manufacturers of these technologies the incentive to bring them to new industries, the electrified cement kilns and so on, and scale them up. And um, this is absolutely possible. Uh, you asked about time frame. Um, I I do address that in the book. Um, I say that um, we could have globally. The book has a global scope, and I I say globally you could get you could get there by 2050 to 2070. Um, I gave a range because not every country would achieve zero carbon industry at the exact same moment. Some countries are further along. Than others, some countries have more money to invest, um, and the conclusion of the book talks about how to s- it divides this process into three stages, um, where which technologies and policies do you focus on first, and then later, and then finally. And one of the steps, uh, one of the parts of this process is international collaboration, and the book talks about actually it has a whole chapter on how to make the transition to clean industry promote equity and human development, how to help, um, how it can help address some of these global challenges around inequity and poverty. And um, part of the roadmap is for some of these leading countries that can get there first to then uh, lend help, you know, license their intellectual property, license their technology, et cetera, uh, to help other countries get across the finish line, you know, lift everyone to the finish line. So, um, I do believe it's possible, and it's possible globally, uh, 2050 to 2070. Fascinating, fascinating. Well, this has been, I think, quite a hopeful conversation. And, you know, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. You're, you're a, a fountain of knowledge, and I feel like, um, you know, I, I learned a lot, and I'm sure the listeners will, will have as well. Um, so thank you so much. Well, thank you. I'm so appreciative of the opportunity to share uh, with you and your listeners. And, and thank you for um, doing what you do with this, with this podcast. It's so important to help share this information. 